Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Godestine's Crown. This is Jason Broughton. We have back with us today, Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. Glad to be here. We are looking at the gospel reading for the first Sunday in Lent. It comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right, uh, context. Uh, Maybe just the context of Lent. Like, what is this season all about? i uh, done some reading in Lindemann again. It's just nice to get back into the reading what he has to say. And he focuses on how, you know, the fathers say that the Lenten fast had originated with apostles and, and what that meant. That it meant that uh, it was a time to prepare for the resurrection of Jesus and thus our resurrection with him. And so he, he, he says, the idea of rising with Christ into newness of life would lead to a careful examination of the believer's life and would call for the elimination of all that indicated relapse into the selfishness and indifference of the old Christless life. The basic purpose of Lent was the preparation for the rising to newness of life at Easter. He continues, All observances, then, must aim at permanent improvement of the Christian life. Lent is the time for practice and training in virtues and self-denial that are to be permanent and habitual in the renewed life after Easter. The temporary interruption of some selfish habit for the limited period of Lent with the intention of resuming the old habit after Easter should not be encouraged. Uh, so, uh, that's hardcore, a very different from our kind of view of Lent today. Um, uh, what do you think about that? I think the spirit of it is, is accurate. I, though I'm, I, I think we're a little bit too hard on the sort of giving things up for Lent. I mean, you, you can just hear his sort of, Lutheran disgust with uh, bad Roman Catholics who, you know, give up drunkenness just to take it up again or something. And I, I don't know how widespread that really is, but I mean, that's 
right? That's kind of commonly our idea. Mm-hmm. You know, you give up meat on, you give up meat for Lent and then you eat fish with full blown gluttony and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I, I think, um, you know, of, of course, sin, we should give up all the time. You know, selfish habits. I mean, what does he mean by that? that you know, uh, you know, on Easter day, we should have a feast. Yeah. Um, you know, even when it comes to alcohol, I, we, I've been doing some work thinking about reading about alcohol and proper use of alcohol and so forth. I mean, I, I think that part of the goodness of alcohol is a little tipsiness, right? To make glad the heart of men, to loosen up sort of social connections and, and even inhibitions, uh, I don't think that the point of it is just that you would taste it and it would have no effect on you. Mm-hmm. I, the problem is, of course, it's just so dangerous. And, you know, it's so it's just so easy to be like, oh, this is great. I'm having a good time. I feel good. It's fun. You know, it would make it even better more, right? That's, <laughs> that's our problem. But, but I think, you know, I mean, I think on, uh, on Easter, you know, you ought to get a little tipsy, I guess. I, th- I think you ought to overeat. I mean, <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, and I don't mean that we should go, you know, overboard and go, you know, go into the point of actual sin. But so I don't know if I quite buy the buy the idea that that what we give up in Lent is going to be permanent. So here's the you question: uh, When the Bible thinks of feasting, do they think of what is eaten? at a feast or they think of how much or is it both? I think it's both. I mean, okay. there's, you know, talk about, I mean, well, the wedding at Cana, right? But then also the kind of extravagance with quantity that you see, you know, in the eschatological stuff, Okay. you know, hills dripping with wine and, and all that. So certainly quality is, is part of it also, what they're eating, you know, the, the marrow, the fat, the, the wine. But mm-hmm. so, so anyway, I don't know, maybe that's, I don't want to be too hard on Lindemann there, but uh, I think in in some ways there's been a lot of kind of Lutheran at the popular level, a kind of Lutheran despising of Lenten disciplines because they're not as pious as they could be or something, you know? Okay, sure, sure. But it sounds like he's more more hardcore on the piety than than we would even be. And Yeah, and I think that's good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just there, like there's that a correction for us, right? To to yes. see that we, we should view these practices as something to be long term, not just to get through, to be done, to take it up again. Um, long term, right. in the sense that we are training ourselves to say no to our bodies, to our flesh. And that doesn't mean that we're never going to have chocolate again, but maybe our relationship with chocolate has been changed forever because of this. Yes. Well, and maybe we're going to actually then be able to savor chocolate. Right. Yeah. And right. not so, just I mean, pig because- out on it or be, <laughs> right. or be ruled by it, like so often right. the case is. Exactly. So, right. That, I mean, part of the uh, th- this idea of feasting is to, right, to, or to fasting is for the sake of feasting and so that we would have the proper relationship to it. And one of our problems is, you know, we're just in our day and age, we're just feasting all the time. Right. So that, you know, yeah. But yeah, you know, that's part of the whole, I I think also the gift of the Sabbath, um, that there is, that there is rest. 
Mm. and there is recreation and you know, so. Okay. So other, uh, issues in Lent, you know, the, the, the training, um, you know, that kind of runs through all of Lent. So what is, um, what is the training being put forth in this text? Uh, and contextually, where does it fall in Matthew's gospel? Well, it's right. It's right after the baptism. So it's as soon as he's anointed, he's, he's handed over to the devil. So beautiful, Mm -hmm. terrible, but beautiful. I mean, that's the context. And it's the, it's, you know, from there, from here, he's going to go and start calling disciples and, you know, his, his uh, public ministry. Mm-hmm. So that's the context in Matthew um, and in the other uh, two. The, uh, I think in terms of Lent, right, uh, in, in, in some ways, Invocavit is more programmatic than Ash Wednesday. Uh, but, I mean, Ash, I wonder what the history of Ash Wednesday is. I just thought of that. I don't. I don't actually know because because it seems to me that this text is more more foundational than the Sermon on the Mount in a sense, and and the other texts as well, uh, because you do have this. It, this is a very rich Sunday. Uh, the Old Testament is the Genesis three, so mm-hmm. you got that whole thing. Uh, uh, the Epistle is uh, Saint Paul uh, talking about all of these sort of. Um, almost paradoxical contrasts that aren't right. That in, so you have things like uh, we are deceivers yet true unknown yet well-known dying behold, we live so forth. So there's that. And then the, I mean, the collect for the day is one of the most fantastic collects. Um, The gradual and tractor Psalm 91 kind of Mm -hmm. playing off of the devil's misuse of those passages. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, him, him, Nick, you know, you're going to sing a mighty fortress uh, but so there's just like, so, and then we, well, we have the litany also, we do the litany every day in Lent. Okay. So there's a lot going on. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of, it's very pointed. And I think, I don't know if that's fair to say, it feels more Lent to me than Ash Wednesday mm-hmm. and more, more foundational. And of course, I mean, Lent is defined by the 40 days, which is, you know, a reflection of the 40 days that Jesus is in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Mostly, I mean, yeah. other things too, but that's the main thing. I mean, you do get on Ash Wednesday the the setting forth of what you'll be doing: fasting, praying, yeah. uh, giving alms. Right. No, I, I right. Yeah, I, I don't want to take. And I mean, you have the ceremony, obviously, of ashes, which is you know very moving. Um, mm. That almost worries me a little bit how powerful of a ceremony it is. Uh, but I do think it's a powerful ceremony and I think it's appropriate, but it does have, it does have the potential like all really great ceremonies to overshadow what it's actually, what its purpose is. Right. Okay. So anyway, so that's the context I'd say this, this is really setting the agenda for, for Lent itself and even for passion tide and for Holy week that, uh, that really what this is, that what everything is about is this cosmic struggle. So it, it's almost like Jesus is heading out into the wilderness to do battle with Satan. Yeah, um, exactly. Is there a sense also then that during Lent, we are engaged in that kind of battle against the, our own sin, but also you know, the principalities and powers of the air that St. Paul talks about in Ephesians? 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that's very, I think the idea is that it's being drawn, you know, to the forefront of our consciences, but that we should recognize this is the daily battle of the Christian mm-hmm. and that we are engaging in spiritual warfare and the devil is not far away. Yeah. So there's a great, so I think I'll, I was going to get to this later, but uh, Chemnitz's Lotzi on angels is really worth reading before preaching on this text again. And uh, he's got this great, this great thing about how we're doing battle against the devil. Oh, here we go. Uh, so this is, this is the, uh, you know, CPH paperback version translated by Jack Preuss. Pa- volume one, page 176, Lotzi, Theoloki, or however you say it. Mm-hmm. With regard to spiritual blessings, we think the devil is far away when actually it is at this point that he encircles us to the greatest extent, as we shall note. For he is permitted to harm us in external matters and to lay siege to us in physical matters for the very reason that we thereby may be warned concerning his spiritual wickedness in high and heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. So now, then he gives a list of when and where and how the devil attacks us. And he's got seven. One, when the truth of the gospel is preached, he binds many so that they cannot see. And he gives a passage, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Two, when a person hears the word, but he hears it in a perfunctory or lackadaisical manner, the devil comes and snatches away the word. Luke 8, that's the parable of the sower. Even when we do hear the word with diligence and careful attention, Paul says in Ephesians 4, do not give opportunity to the devil. That is by putting on the old man. For even after the truth has been recognized, the devil again leads many away from the simplicity of Christ. See, for example, 2 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 5. Number five, he is the accuser of our brethren by day and by night. That is, when our conscience wishes to come to God in prayer, he, the devil, disrupts our faith, hope, and devotion. Revelation 12. Six, when we are happy, we must not be elated, lest an occasion be given to Satan to harass us, 2 Corinthians 12. In sadness, we must be on our guard so that we are not taken advantage of by Satan, 2 Corinthians 2. When we are in the exercise of piety, in fasting, prayer, etc., Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, beware lest Satan tempt you. Uh, and then he gives some examples, uh, and it goes on. I mean, there's more here. And then he gives a whole but what are we supposed to do about all this? So I'm skipping down a few paragraphs. Resist, says Peter. 1 Peter 5, 9, put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand. Ephesians 6, 11, or, O Lord, our God, make us steadfast and protect us. And 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 on and on. Uh, anyway, it's it's really, uh, that's just part of the treatise on angels. But But this idea that we are engaged in spiritual warfare, and we need to be conscious of it and active in it. Now that, that's that's really good stuff. Yeah, I mean, it is Chemnitz. What do you expect to True. be mediocre? <laughs> no, I know he's he, he is. I it's so I'm with you. It's I'm constantly surprised at how great it is, even though you know I shouldn't be at this point. So, um, so in all of these stages. He is very close at hand. So I think you, I remember you talking about this when I was uh, maybe at seminary, just was working for the seminary and, and attending, but you talked about how, um, you know, there are two mistakes that we make when we think about the devil uh, and the demons, which is either we, we give, we ascribe to him too much power. And so we're like constantly afraid 
uh, as though like he is equal to God in his power and strength and knowledge, or we kind of fall off the horse like Luther's drunken peasant into the ditch on the other side, and we don't ascribe to him as much power as he actually has. Uh, instead of kind of riding that that road to say he's not as strong as God, but he's stronger than us. Yeah, that's right, right. And this really does kind of put that into perspective. I think um, how how close he is and what kind of power he has. Yeah, yeah, and how he's you know just uh, lying in wait all the time mm-hmm. and. That you know, sins are when we commit sins, particularly sins against our conscience. These are opportunities for him. I, I've mm-hmm. uh, I like to. I'm fond of saying that viewing pornography is like uh, using a Ouija board, yeah. and it's a portal for demons to come right into your home mm-hmm. or wherever you're. You know, but but uh, you know, to I mean that this is really uh, this is a a full on demonic. Uh, activity. And I mean, I, it's, it's basically equal in my mind. Viewing of pornography is equal to satanic worship. Um, it's just awful. Yeah. So why would you do that? <laughs> I mean, okay. I know why we would do it, but, but right. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's head through the text. Uh, did you see any translation issues or just want to drive right into the three temptations and, and what they're about. Yeah, I don't. I didn't have any real translation issues. I did want to highlight. I think there's some interesting vocabulary here. Um, particularly, I, I love this in the second verse or, uh, or so, where the devil is called the tempter. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of nice, right? He's called the diabolo, right? The devil, and then he's called the tempter. Uh, that this is that this is his activity. Um, was there anything else? Seems like there was, but well, yeah. he's named later Satan. In this same in this same pericope? Yeah, verse ten. Jesus says, "Be gone, Satan." Oh, right. Oh, good. So, so you get all three there. All three names, or or yeah. I mean, he's not called the murderer here, um, or, or liar. liar. But yeah, but yeah. tempter kind of carries a little bit of that, um, right? Stretching of the truth, kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was cause well, I mean, we've been, Satan means adversary, right? And uh, or accuser, adversary, accuser, something like that. Yeah, prosecuting and, attorney. Oh um, no, uh, Diabolos means adversary. You're right. Yeah, that's right. Satan. Diab- yeah, yeah. Means accuser. Yeah. Okay. Well, I like the order of the miracle or the uh, temptations in Matthew. Maybe just because I'm used to it, but it is kind of, it is kind of helpful, I think, to, to sort of lay them out, you know, that the first temptation is, takes occasion of there being stones and uh, the hunger of Jesus, mm-hmm. uh, and of course, the history of Israel. Um, and then the pinnacle of the temple, right, really, um, is really more focused on, in some ways, the kind of supernatural, what, mm-hmm. what, what Jesus is owed by these angels you know, even more than, you know, King David is or any of us yeah. are. And, you know, in this place, the temple where they're supposed to be worshiping him. And, you know, they're probably looking right down upon the court of the Gentiles where the money exchanging's going on mm. and all of this sort of wickedness is happening. And then finally on the mountain and 
and here the occasion for the temptation is the kingdoms of the world that Satan displays. And I had never noticed this before, um, and maybe it, maybe it's not that big a deal, but I think he says uh, he will give to Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And the pronoun struck me this time, right? Uh, what what glory can Satan give? I mean, this is maybe it's a false promise anyway. He doesn't have anything to give, but but at the same time, right? The glory of Jesus uh, is that his self giving on the cross, mm-hmm. and so the contrast with the sort of you know the fickle temporary glory of men, but you know much more kind of fun and comfortable in the moment. So. The, the way that it, it progresses, I think the other progression in Matthew is this, is that the last one is the most outrageous. Yeah. It, it's always struck me about, you know, all of these are about basically proving that you're the son of God. And so if you're the son of God, do this to prove it. And, uh, it always kind of strikes me that this is kind of how a lot of temptations work, even from you know one man to another. We're asked to like prove ourselves by doing something that would actually prove contrary, or like we step into a trap <laughs> that it indicates that we don't have the kind of restraint or the kind of power that we we put forth, and how common this kind of thing is, where it's just the gauntlet is laid down and we feel we feel internally like we need to prove it when we kind of know that if we take the bait if we pick up the tug of war rope we're going to prove the opposite but the 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 temptation is too delicious for us not to do it right which you know then i i mean seeing temptations that way i think really plays into and and here too that it's really a temptation to pride Mm. Right. That, I mean, this is what presumably, you know, uh, what caused the devil's downfall uh, mm. was his pride. Yeah. And this is just what he assumes will also work for Jesus. Yeah. And of course, he's wrong. Uh, but uh, when he's talking about Jesus, he's wrong, but he's not wrong when he's talking about us. Right. Well, I mean, he's he's projecting. And so often we see that even, you know, in a world of politics or whatever, people accusing someone of something that they're guilty of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's all, well, I was going to say the answers that Jesus gives to all of these, it's, it's often pointed out by Lutheran preachers that he quotes the Bible in response, which is true. Uh, It's also happens to be true that the response to temptation is the law, Right. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't, in fact, I think if he would have quoted the gospel, uh, he would have fallen prey to the temptation because, because the, the devil is asking him to do things that God has forbidden. And if, he, and if the answer is, well, my father loves me and I'm free in the gospel, right, that, then uh, that's kind of, in, in a way, I think, interesting too, right? He, he has to, the response is, look, uh, God forbids God forbids that we live by bread, right? God forbids that we tempt him. God forbids that we worship other gods. Mm-hmm. And in each case, the response is, you're asking me or demanding me to do something forbidden. And yeah, the only response to that is the law, mm-hmm. right? 
I mean, I think of this in terms of in the modern context, it's like when somebody says to us, why can't women be pastors? And we want to give a gospel answer. And so we say, oh, well, you know, she gets to be these other things. Well, listen, that's just, that's not a gospel answer. It's, it's not an answer. Right. The, the gospel answer to the question, why can't women be pastors, I think would be in Christ, there's neither male nor female. It's just that that's, the, that's not really the appropriate answer because it's not, a, it's not a question about who are we in Jesus Christ. It's about what, what can I do by right and what has been forbidden. And so the, the right answer is God forbids women from being pastors, mm-hmm. not, you know, something else. And I think that often in, you know, so much of what kind of we're struggling with in our parishes and in the world today, they are questions of the law, right? Who can I sleep with? Can I divorce my wife? Uh, Do I have to pay my taxes? I mean, on and on, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this desire on our part to be gentle and kind and loving and accepting. And in fact, you know, we, 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 have to, we have to respond to these with the law. Yeah. Here's what God has given. Here's what he's forbidden. You know, here's the goodness. Um, well, if you ask a law question, you'll get a law answer, right? We learned this. Yeah, you, uh, you should. You should get a law answer, yeah. But, you know, behind that statement also is like that law questions are bad. Right. Um, right. Well, here they, they are. Here they are, right? <laughs> They're in the mouth of Satan. Um, right, right. But he's not like asking a question. He's he's telling them to do do these things. Right, right, right. So no, no, that's right. Um, sometimes law questions are clarifying questions. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, any question that we ask, I mean, this is exactly how Luther tells us to examine ourselves, right? When we consider our station in life according to the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, uh, part of the point of that is that we would, you know, uh, we're all so interested in, you know, what the, you know, what the general of the army is going to do in Iraq and whether he's doing a good job or not. And, you know, not paying attention to actually the things right in front of us that's been given to us. So no, I think you're you're right. Law questions have especially questions about our vocation. Hmm. Um, you know, because what do I what am I worried about? I'm, I'm worried about things I don't have any control over, and that's just sin. Mm-hmm. And I need to actually respond to what's in front of me, right? Yeah. So I think I think that when you when you start asking law questions, particularly about your vocation. Well, what can I do about this? Mm-hmm. You know, what's within, what's within my sphere of influence? What have I been given authority to exercise, you know, and so forth? Well, I really can't, you know, okay, I can vote in the election. Okay. Uh, you know, outside of that, you know, maybe I can write a letter. Okay, that's it. Uh, but uh, I don't mean that we shouldn't be engaged in the, in the public sphere at all, uh, of course. But I think in some ways we can get caught up in that and neglect the actual, you know, children right in front of us around the table. Mm. You know what I can do? I can teach them to pray. I can make them say their memory work. You know, I can feed them a healthy diet. I can teach them to exercise, right? Or, uh, you know, I can also in my own life do these things for my own health and so that I can, you know, carry out my vocations better. Yeah. Now, is there a sense in which... we often will talk about how you know Jesus is Israel reduced to one, and he's kind of redoing 
uh, <laughs> yeah. Israel's wilderness wanderings, so to speak. Is there anything to the temptations here that can be mapped onto what the Israelites faced in the wilderness? Oh yeah, I, I think a hundred percent. You know, he's uh, you know they're in the wilderness, but they're fed and they fail, right? And and so you know he's getting it in a worse everything about it's worse for him, and yet he succeeds. And he does not, yeah. I mean, I think the point of this, the, the real temptation in some ways, right, This it, it is a kind of call to pride, but I think also there, there is this sort of call from Satan to give up on Israel. Just go be God somewhere else and leave these people to me to what they deserve, right? Mm-hmm. You know, why in the world are you hungry when everything is yours, and there's people all over the world that you are providing for who don't even acknowledge you, right? They're not worthy of you. Mm-hmm. And even these people that you've revealed yourself to, and you gave them manna in the wilderness, and they made a golden calf. They're, wor- they, they're terrible. Start over. Let me have them go start a new universe, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, come down from the cross. I think that's, I, I mean, I think that's kind of all of it. Why are the angels protecting other people? And here your father has handed you over to me. Um, and I think there's a threat in that second one too, right? That, uh, you know, are the angels going to come and come and catch you if I push you down? Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then the last one, of course, why are there, why are there people living in luxury and, uh, you know, worshiped by men, worshiped by other men and all of the glory of these kingdoms. And again, you're, you're unacknowledged. Here you are sore, tired, hungry, nobody cares, including your father. So, just let me have these people and they, they get what they deserve, you know, according to your law, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. really, it's, it's amazing. He stands, I mean, it's not, I mean, of course he can't sin. I get that. But I mean, it is astounding to try to contemplate the pressure that he's under and the reasonableness of Satan's argument in many ways. Yeah. So how does, you just said the reasonable of his argument, often we'll hear like sin is just stupid. Um, and crazy. Uh, but there's always a rationale behind it. So this is a time where um, you just have to say it out loud to say, yeah, that's, that's not as reasonable as it initially sounds. You have to you know, repeat it back to yourself out loud. Like, yeah, I'm going to do this because it's going to make me feel better. Yeah. I think, I think saying it out loud does help it realize that it's not actually reasonable. Um, I mean, it would only be reasonable if God weren't love. Mm-hmm. Right. Or if God weren't actually good and, and didn't actually create creation originally good. So, I mean, in, in that sense, you know, right, it's, it's obviously not fully reasonable. I, th- I think it's fair to say sin is stupid. But, uh, yeah, we do need to recognize that while it's stupid from the point of view of actual wisdom in the moment, you know, it seems like it's going to deliver, you know, I, I want this thing and, and I'm going to get it. You know, I want this and I'm going to take it. Now I got it. So there it worked, mm-hmm. except it never works, right? It didn't work for Adam and Eve. It didn't work for the devil himself. Uh, you know, it never works for anybody. It's kind of like scratching the itch, isn't it? It's like you scratch it and you think it's going to go away and get better, but it only gets worse. Yeah, right. The devil's always a liar and he never delivers on anything he promises. Nor can he really carry out anything that he threatens. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I mean, he doesn't, right? Uh, Eve doesn't become like God the way she thought she would. It was, a, it was a trick or a deception. And in the same way, when he threatens us with, you know, if we don't do this, whatever, God, God's going to hate us or God hates us anyway, so we might as well. Or, um, yeah, he, he, he's not, again, he's not omnipotent. He's under control. He's, you know, he's a dragon, but he's on a chain. And, mm. you know, even with Job, right, he's, he's not allowed to just do anything that he wants. He's, he's always uh, actually, I mean, I do like this idea of uh, that he's being himself actually tricked. And uh, there's even a sort of sense in which the crucifixion itself is a temptation to the devil that he falls for, right? That he thinks, I mean, he knows, he knows the prophecies, he knows God's character at some level, but he doesn't believe in it. And so when he gets the chance to kill Jesus, even though he knows intellectually that this will destroy him and his kingdom and win salvation for mankind, he's like, I got to do it. You know, it'll feel so good to kill Jesus. And he does. So the, you know, the primary thing then is that not only does Jesus win, but he exposes, he exposes that the devil is, uh, defeatable is that part of what we also see here is that it's not a oh, yeah. foregone conclusion that what the devil says goes right in fact i mean we should be suspicious of anything that he says mm-hmm. right i mean he has been a lot he's a liar and a murderer from the beginning and i mean this he's the opposite in that sense of god we should trust everything in the bible Right. There's, there's, it's all we, this, this is what we should believe and trust. It's, it's been proven over and over again to us that this is good, that this is solid, that this is eternal, you know, and, you know, but of course, again, the flesh is weak and gets tricked. Yeah. All right. So in terms of like doctrines, we already kind of laid out a little bit about the, the word of God and its importance here. Um, the the power of the devil and also then the lack thereof. Are there any other doctrines to uh, bring forward uh, in this text? Well, I think you know you could do a lot with either angels or with the devil or demons or both. The um, Loti Theologi by Chemnitz is really great. You, the, also, the explanation to the small catechism from 2017 has a lot in it. So if you use the index and go to those questions, and then, you know, there's not only questions and answers, but also Bible passages. So yeah, there's a lot to be said about, about what, cause there are angels at the end of this, right? The angel, the good angels, the holy angels come and minister to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the angels are invoked. And I mean, what, are, what are we actually promised in Psalm 91? So, so I think those are doctrines, both, both of those things, the reality of, the invisible world that God created the angels, what they are correcting, you know, do we become an angel when we die or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so there's lots to be done there. And also Chemnitz has at the end of that treatise, he has why this doctrine is useful. Um, and so if you think, well, who cares? Chemnitz cares and you should too. So also, really, the humiliation of Jesus, right? That is that, you know, he, and maybe the connection between his active and his passive obedience. Yeah, I was uh, going to ask about that. Active, oh, yeah. 
his active obedience is that he doesn't sin, right? He's tempted and he resists. But the, the kind of passive obedience here is that the Holy Spirit is the one that takes him out there. Mm-hmm. And he, he allows himself to stand in the stead, to be the one Israel, to, to suffer the humiliating and false accusations of the devil and the sorrows of being hungry and, and so forth. So he is doing that, you know, in our, well, both of those things, but right, in our stead uh, and defeating the devil for us. So, and there's certainly direct correspondence with, with the crucifixion itself too. Mm-hmm. So those are good doctrines to, to go after. Um, yeah, I mean, again, you know, you could certainly talk about the word, because that, that it is central here, how the word is rightly used and how it is that the word overcomes it. Um, this is more kind of in training, but, but certainly to recognize, to, to maybe talk about Lent itself uh, and Lenten disciplines and traditions that are helpful in terms of making Lent a training ground and particularly a training ground for how to resist temptation, right? So prayer, uh, Holy Scripture and fasting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- there's a lot to be talked about here, not just in the example of Jesus that we should imitate, but but also other places what he says about fasting. And you know, I think it's you're the the again that that uh, podcast you did with Ian Kinney on this was great. So you know, this could be an opportunity to preach on fasting mm-hmm. and and the other stuff too, but. Again, uh, Chemnitz has a whole thing in there about how the devil is resisted. And he's got so much in this treatise, you, you, could, you couldn't preach it all. But you could pick one of these sections and, you know, take his seven points and the Bible passages and there's your sermon outline. And, you know, resisting the devil and resisting temptation are really the same thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there is there a sense that... You know, so we begin Lent with Ash Wednesday, where we focus on fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. Is there an alms uh, oh. thing within the temptation? Uh, perhaps just the giving of himself to be tempted, or or the or maybe yeah, I don't, I don't. Uh, maybe there's something in here about the temptation to misuse creation. Mm. Uh, you know, on the kind of the opposite of almsgiving in a way. Mm-hmm. And then you could, you know, Jesus, right? He, he sees the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't take them. He doesn't use them for his own purposes or his own pleasure. Uh, you know, I mean, that's sort of the opposite. And maybe you could talk about, you know, how is it that gluttony is overcome? You know, I mean, uh, maybe glut- what's the other word for, uh, what's the word for loving money? Greed. <laughs> Greed. Is that is that right? Okay. Well, anyway, the, so yeah, the... <laughs> That should have been so hard. The, that you know, the antidote to greed is almsgiving, right? To mm-hmm. give it away. Uh, so, I don't know, though. Yeah, that's that's a little harder to see the connection, I guess. So, it, what about consolation here? Um, is it is it just that Jesus wins? <laughs> is it that- <laughs> just that? <laughs> <laughs> that, the, that the father sends the angels to minister or I mean, not an either or obviously, but what's the focus on the consolation? I know yeah, I, I just that Jesus wins, of course, that's, <laughs> but I mean, it's kind of, just that's the Sunday school answer, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. And they're not always wrong, yeah. but right. But not exactly real uh, insightful or uh, right. 
Yeah. yeah, certainly that he's being sent for us in our place to suffer this and to win the victory in our stead and, and the, the victory that we absolutely could not win, right? There's no way we could have done this. So, mm-hmm. so that's consolation, absolutely. And he does it willingly and he doesn't fail. Thank, thanks be to God. Uh, I think, you know, there's consolation in the fact of these angels coming to minister to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's also, I think, you know, there's consolation in the answers that he gives to the devil. You know, that his his response to the devil from, you know, Deuteronomy 8 about, you know, we, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Hey, there is actually a way to live, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that's a law statement, but uh, it is showing that God actually has a good eternal order into which we belong and to which he's called us and provides for us in it. Yeah. And, you know, same thing. He does actually give his angels charge over us. And on. so I don't know. And the worship of God is, uh, is actually joyful and good. And, you know, we receive the forgiveness of sins. So there's consolation in here for sure. Yeah. Could a consolation be, you know, Satan is tempting um, Jesus, if you are the Son of God, you know, then prove it by doing these things. Often we get, you know, if if you're a Christian, then you know, mm. why do these things happen? Uh, could we flip that around and say, mm. since you're a Son of God, since you're a Christian, these things do happen. This should not be a reason to doubt, but to be lifted up that you know you're going through these temptations and difficulties precisely because. Not yeah, not in spite of. Yeah, I like it. No, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, they, and uh, it's not your job to to prove God according to some you know college freshman's standards that he learned <laughs> in his philosophy class. I mean, you know, and it, it, it's uh, right. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, sometimes there's a kind of burden that comes with apologetics that isn't really appropriate. Mm. Yeah. So I mean I'm not against apologetics. I mean I'm just saying you know right we can take more of a just like we can take a burden for the lost that's inappropriate mm-hmm. right it's not our job to save the lost Jesus died for them we didn't right it, mm-hmm. but we do have a we are given part of the kingdom and it is it is given to us to evangelize and that's not optional right um, you know but we can we can misunderstand that burden and and take too much in a way that's inappropriate and I think that can happen sometimes in these other situations too, that we just are so bent on, you know, disproving Darwin that, uh, you know, it's hard to live by faith. Right. Yeah. So, so there, I I think you could see that in here. He doesn't, you know, he does not get into, I mean, lots of commentators have pointed this out, but you know, he does not get into a debate with with the devil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's almost as if, it's almost as if he, uh, he's kind of like, well, you're making the statement, you have the burden of proof. I don't. Yeah. Um, I think if it wasn't for us, he wouldn't even talk to him. I think the only reason he answers the devil is for our benefit, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, so that we would know how to rightly use the word and also would know that the word is sufficient. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to get into long, complicated. I always... Uh, I, I got a great story about Jackie's dad. So he was, was a Missouri Synod pastor. He's in his 90s now, retired. But when he was in Iowa in the early 70s as a pastor, I think it was John Tejan came there to debate, and nobody would debate him, even though lots of conservatives, you know, believed he was wrong about the whole, you know, the inerrancy of Scripture and the historicity of, 
Adam and Eve and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Jackie's dad did it, even though he didn't have any advanced degrees. And I don't want to make it sound like he's dumb, but I mean, it, you know, he couldn't hold he couldn't hold his own against John Tejan, mm-hmm. who was very articulate and well educated and had lots of and uh, but but her dad did it because somebody had to and. You know, anybody observing this would say, well, he lost the debate, right? He was outclassed. He was out-argued. He wasn't, you know, uh, anybody watching except for the Holy Angels would say that, right? Because because all he did was he just quoted the Bible. And God bless him for that. You know, that's wonderful. That's great. And I think, you know, uh, it's commendable. It was great. It was was hard. It was painful Mm -hmm. for him. He was humiliated by it. He knew he would be, but he did it anyway because he wanted to bear witness to what Holy Scripture says. And God bless him for that. What a what a marvelous example. Um, Yeah, but to be counted as fools. I mean, that's kind of uh, what Saint Paul in in Corinthians is talking about, right? Yeah. For that day. Yeah. You know, we're we're labeled as imposters, yet we're true. We're we're called all these things, and yet it's. That's not the case. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's a good connection. So, so in a in a similar vein, you know, so here's here's Satan. He knows the truth, but he's he's trying to call into question the truth of the the sonship of Jesus, and then thus the divinity of Jesus. Um, and uh, and the and that's what Saint Paul is. Uh, encountering everywhere um, that they're false or that he's not a real apostle or, and how much is that the case throughout the history of Christianity, perhaps not in the United States since the, I don't know, second great awakening, um, but certainly in the past, what, 10, 15 years where Christianity is, really kind of under attack and we're seen as kind of pariahs and 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 false um and really kind of like the the refuse of the earth yeah is there a um is there a way to put that bring those things to bear on on, on what kind of we as pastors or even uh, as the people in our pews, what they face in terms of that kind of worldly pushback uh, as a way to um, a, a rally cry almost to say, like, don't give up. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And of course, in our fallen flesh, we often are. But, uh, you know, just to be, I think, maybe to be reminded of that. And, uh, this is what was is eternal. This is what's good. This is what's trustworthy. And, you know, the fickle opinions of men are not, and they're not worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these we're doing we're doing work here that the world does not recognize, but the raising of children matters. And uh, you know, even though it's only a few, just the ones that have been given to us, that's that's the good work. And that's gonna last because those children are gonna live forever. Right. Yeah. So um, you've been preaching on this for over 20 years now. What do you think you're going to focus this time around? I think I might preach on Psalm 91 this year. I mean, I'll, I'll tie it, obviously, to the Matthew 4. But I think maybe um, it would be helpful to, uh, to look at this and to consider the reality that we, we are surrounded by enemies and we are under attack. And God has 
made these promises to us in Christ to see us through and protect us. And that's the right use of these passages that were misused by the devil. Mm. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, any final thoughts? Any Anything that we didn't bring up that you wanted to touch base on? I think we got pretty good, pretty well through it. Okay. Well, thanks for your time, Dave. Uh, we'll pick up with Lent too. All right. Thanks, Jason. 